morning and welcome to Rising. I am Brianna Joy Gray and I have the very special treat of being joined this Thursday by Amber Duke here at the desk. Welcome back, Amber. Thanks. It's good to be back with you. It's I been love a while. This, I love this duo. We, we miss Robbie, but we're going to have a little <laughs> bit of fun today. It's Girls Day. We got the blazers on. We're ready to go. <laughs> I love it. All right. So Elon Musk spoke at yesterday's New York Times Deal Book Summit where he had this explosive message for advertisers pulling out of X. Apology tour, if you will. This had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. <laughs> Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Now, Musk's outburst led NBC News senior reporter Ben Collins to express concerns for his health. He wrote on X, quote, actually watching this all the way through, and it's kind of disturbing. Something is clearly going on with this guy. Others cheered on the tech entrepreneur. Glenn Greenwald wrote this. This is exactly what people should tell corporate advertisers who try to control the content of speech from media outlets or social media platforms. Sadly, virtually all media corporations and their journalist employees are far too cowardly to do it. Instead, they comply. And ex-CEO Linda Yaccarina took to the platform to do damage control, tweeting, Musk also offered an apology, an explanation, and an explicit point of view about our position. X is enabling an information independence that's uncomfortable for some people, or a platform that allows people to make their own decisions. Whew. Okay, so what do you make of this? Do you think that it's kind of a good faith argument that Elon Musk is saying, I don't really care about the advertisers, I'm doing this for a bigger principle, when he is simultaneously suing or threatening to sue the ADL for allegedly misrepresenting the level of hate on the platform in a move that drove advertisers away. And his telling, he's suing them because they caused him to lose advertisers. Can he simultaneously care that he doesn't care if advertisers go away? I think... <sighs> Yes, because I think, I mean, fundamentally what he's saying is that he doesn't want his speech to be controlled by advertisers. And so I think you can simultaneously say that there are bad faith actors in the media who are intentionally either manipulating what Elon has said or manipulating the algorithm to get certain results and then writing media stories about it, while also saying if media companies or if corporations fall for that and then change their advertising decisions based on these manipulated media stories, then I don't want their business. I'm not basically I'm not going to respond to media blackmail and corporate blackmail um, to to change the way I operate on the platform. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. So he goes on to say that you know there's more questioning and he's asked, well, what do you think is going to happen? Are you willing to lose all the money on Twitter? Will you keep Twitter open even if it's at a loss? He doesn't answer that question really squarely, as I recall it, but then goes on to, to say in response to a question of, about whether he would expect people to then boycott Disney or whatever other um, outlets no longer want to advertise on Twitter, he would say yes. So he seems to think that people are going to vote with their dollars, that companies that are unwilling to advertise on Twitter will get backlash elsewhere, the way that some people have boycotted Disney or something like Bud Light or, or the like. And the interviewer was a little bit incredulous about that, as am I. Now, if he wants to say, this is a app that I've bought for the purpose of being a 
free speech platform. I don't care about the profit. I don't care that I've already lost half of the $44 billion worth of value because of the advertisers fleeing. I think that he can do that. But he didn't exactly say that. He didn't answer the question square on, are you willing just to do this for the public good at great cost to yourself? And he basically said, if Twitter has to shut down, it'll be the public to blame. It'll be those companies that no longer right. advertise on my platform to blame, and no one should blame me. I'm not sure that that is in the interest of free speech if it ultimately means that Twitter, which I think is a worthwhile platform, ultimately shuts down. Yeah, and I've always had uh, questions about the, the way some of his operations have lent themselves to his supposed goal of promoting free speech and having this open platform. Um, there's still a lot of shadow banning on Twitter, for example. There's still a lot of algorithmic suppression of certain accounts. Um, but that being said, I think that he... I think he believes that the corporations are going to come back. And I think he believes the advertisements are going to come back. And those lawsuits are probably in pursuit of that goal as well. Um, but does it also maybe prove his point if these corporate advertisers are so willing to go along with whatever the popular media narrative is against X, against Musk, to ultimately shut down the platform, maybe he really does believe that the public would be on his side in that debate. I'm not sure that that's totally true, but I think it is worth you know, mentioning as well that the Media Matters article that came out that sparked a lot of these advertise advertisers to pull out from X was deeply bad faith, which most of the things they do are. Um, they had, according to Twitter, supposedly intentionally followed only anti-Semitic and Nazi-promoting accounts, and then just refreshed their page repeatedly thousands and thousands of times until they finally got a corporate advertisement next to it and then took screenshots. And Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Yeah. But I also think that the bigger criticism of Elon Musk that I would make on this front is that he has been... Um, inconsistent with his own principles. Sure. So recently, going and doing the apology tour, that was at the beginning of the question, uh, right before we started uh, playing the clip, um, to Israel, you know, saying some kind of common sense things about being concerned that all the bombing is going to generate more terrorism, and then a week later after a trip to Israel saying, well, actually, we're going to ban on my free speech platform discussions of uh, from the river to the sea or the word decolonization, if it's being used with respect to Israel. Is that really a free speech platform? Is it really a free speech platform if you've kowtowed to Modi and other world leaders in the past? And can you have it both ways? Is it really about advertisers here, or is it really about your own personal ideology that's being curtailed in ways that you personally don't like? So we have more from this. Later in the discussion, Musk was asked the million-dollar question, who is he voting for? I think I would not vote for Biden. <laughs> You'd vote for Trump. I'm not saying I'd vote for Trump, but I mean, this is, this is definitely a difficult choice, yeah, you know. Would, would, you, uh, would you vote for Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley, by the way, wants uh, all social media um, names to be exposed, as you know. No, I think that's outrageous. Yeah, no, I, we, we, I'm not going to vote for some pro-censorship candidate. Musk was also grilled on maintaining his free speech bona fides while running at Twitter slash X in countries without First Amendment protections. What do you think about the leverage that the Chinese have over you? And do they have leverage over you? And how do you feel about, some people would say, is it hypocritical uh, for you to be doing business in China or, frankly, in other countries as it relates to X and other things that don't follow this free speech path that uh, you have espoused? The best that the X platform can do 
is adhere to the laws of any given country. Uh, do you think there's something more we could do than that? Do you think there's something more he can do than that? I mean, this is the question, right? Is the standard really, I have a free speech platform and I'm going to send it to the world, or is it that I'm going to do, just follow the free speech rules in whatever country I'm in? In the United States of America, we happen to have a First Amendment, but this really isn't a broader principle that I'm willing to take a stand on when it comes to whether or not I kowtow to the requests of other governments around the world. Well, I guess he has two options, right? He has the option to either not operate in those countries at all, or he has the option to abide by whatever their laws are. And I think he's probably erring on the side of, I would rather those people have access to the platform than otherwise. But I mean, there's not a perfect solution when it comes to... But that's very different than what he's saying about us here in America, right? In America, he's saying, well, if advertisers don't advertise on Twitter, I'll shut down Twitter and no one will have Twitter. When it comes to sh shipping the thing overseas, it's, well, if Modi tells me to ban this content, or if um, uh, yet Netanyahu tells me to ban this kind of language on the app, I'll go ahead and do it. It's yeah, I see your point. I mean, I definitely think he's more America-centric in terms of what he wants to do with Twitter. But that being said, I think one of the things that I've noticed more broadly about Elon Musk's general takeover of Twitter as a platform is that he—and this is, like, exactly to what you're saying in terms of the contradictions, right—is that he has this broader idea of having this very pro-free speech platform. But in many ways, he seems to kind of be fi figuring it out as he goes along mm. and still kind of grappling with some inconsistencies in his own way of how he views and operates the platform. And so it's kind of surreal to us because we're watching it play out in real time. Like, these questions weren't figured out before he purchased it. It almost seemed like an impulse decision to yeah. buy Twitter, and now he's still trying to navigate all of these, uh, these various issues with how exactly to use it in a way that is conducive to free speech while also having terms of service and operating in foreign countries that don't have First Amendments and all of that jazz. Yeah, the fundamental problem is that all of these social media companies are about ad sales. As a business, if you care about it as a business, so a business you paid $44 billion for, that's what it's about. And so, uh, so much of, of the decisions that Twitter has made and is making before Elon and now, when it was being characterized as a, an arm of kind of a liberal establishment and otherwise, are largely rooted in these kind of financial decisions. And those can have alignments with politics, for sure. Where, you know, who are the people with money and what do they believe in, and things like that. But it is, does seem somewhat naive to dive headfirst into this and to not have thought that through. And I think this is something that Glenn Greenwald has been exposing recently, that a lot of the folks who have been talking about free speech for years now, and who have made the argument that the only real bastion of free speech protections are on the right, in the wake of what's going on in, in Israel and Gaza, have flipped on a dime and are suddenly saying, oh, we got to arrest all the college kids, oh, we got to make a, um, a terrorism charge if you are a member of a pro-Palestinian group, we're going to refer to everybody at a protest in the street as pro-Hamas. Suddenly, it's clear that many of those people were not actually pro-free speech, they were pro the speech that they personally liked. And I think the concern with Elon Musk is that when you look at the pattern of his behavior, Behavior, that seems to be what's coming out on the app, even though many of us who were enthusiastic or hopeful about what would happen when he bought the app um, had hoped, maybe against likelihood, but had hoped <laughs> they would actually be pr as principled about this as someone like Glenn Greenwald has been. Yeah, and I, I think people had unrealistic expectations of Elon Musk. I mean, he's not like a political ideolo 
ideologist, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's not really an ide an idealist kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I've always had issues with Elon Musk for some of his other related concepts, like putting microchips in people's brains. So I was like, <laughs> talk about this in there yeah, too. So I was immediately skeptical when he purchased Twitter of, yeah. of this idea that he was like this conservative firebrand that some people have kind of assigned to him. But um, I don't know. I'm just fascinated to see where it goes. I, I, I feel like the disruption, it, it's almost like um, the election of Trump in 2016 in terms of like, we want something that is different than what we've had for a long time. Um, is the alternative really better? We'll see. Yeah. But we're okay if it blows up the system in the process. And that's kind of, I think, the approach yeah. a lot of people have to social media because of how uh, problematic it's been in terms of censoring information that's deemed inconvenient to the political sure. establishment. Sure. All right. Well, stick around. We certainly have a lot more rising for you coming up next. We have some breaking news. Dr. Anthony Fauci will testify before the Republican-led House Committee on Oversight and Accountability next January per a statement released by the committee this morning. Fauci will sit for a transcribed interview to occur on January 8th and 9th of 2024. Seven hours of testimony, excluding breaks per day, has been allotted for this interview. And the big news, a public hearing is to be at a later date to be announced. Okay, so many people have been wanting some kind of accountability, and it looks like this might be at least the start of it. It's a lengthy opportunity for people to directly question Fauci in a public forum. Something like this hasn't happened in a long time. Obviously, he hasn't been in his position um, at the CDC for quite some time. He has done interviews and things like that. But this kind of um, adversarial hearing is, I think, going to be a what a breath of fresh air for some yeah. Republicans who have been looking for answers. Yeah, I mean, especially considering bureaucrats who are unelected don't typically get held accountable for the decisions that they make in the name of elected government. And he is someone who repeatedly lied to the American people. Um, he was involved in directing the publication of a paper rejecting the idea that COVID could have been a lab origin, of lab origin, and um, called people conspiracy theorists when mm -hmm. they said that maybe this didn't come from a wet market. Um, he admitted to lying on one occasion of what the threshold was for America to have reached herd immunity in regards to the COVID pandemic, saying that the American people weren't ready to hear the true percentage of people who would need to be vaccinated or have had natural immunity in order for us to return to normal, so to speak. And of course, between him and Deborah Burks, there were also all kinds of moving of the goalposts in regards to mask mandates, social distancing, vaccine mandates, and whether or not the vaccine even prevented you from getting or spreading COVID in the first place. And um, there's also this really strange connection that is not talked about a lot between Fauci and Harvard, where he helped facilitate a donation from a Chinese business called Evergrande to Harvard Medical School um, in the beginning stages of the COVID pandemic and the suggestion based on documents that have been reviewed by investigative reporters is that this donation was given in exchange for downplaying um, China's uh -huh. failures in preventing this from becoming a global issue. Um, so he has a lot to answer for, mm. and I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm most interested, I think, in the discourse around uh, lab leak. I do think that a lot of the 
um, criticism that he's received over basically not trusting the public enough to tell them the truth, whether it was about the efficacy of masks or whether it was about um, uh, how many people needed to get uh, vaccinated for herd immunity to accrue. That has been kind of litigated out in the public sphere. As you pointed out, he kind of admitted to saying, to taking this position repeatedly of, well, I can't trust the public with that, so I'm going to misrepresent it so they do what I want them to do from a public health perspective. Um, but the stuff that I think he'd be really, it'd be worthwhile to kind of cross-examine him on and get him to really engage with documentary evidence that's come out on are these questions of whether or not he forced people's hands to make conclusive statements about how unlikely lab leak theory was mm -hmm. and what his role was in Dow playing funding for gain-of-function research, yeah. knowing what risks were involved. Um, it's been a somewhat of a black box since so much of this obviously happened in China, but there are some competing theories about whether similar kinds of research was being, do, being done uh, domestically and whether the concurrent research is part of why there's been this cover-up as well. That, I think, has more long-term implications as well going into a potential next pandemic. If this, is, uh, this kind of research is ongoing, if it is dangerous, and if it cannot be done with the safety mechanisms that we would all hope were put in place in the first place, then it should be stopped. That has more of, I think, um, uh, I think public value for me at this point than perhaps relitigating some of the stuff about the masks and the, and the vaccine shots, just because I feel like that is out there and hopefully our public health institutions won't try to know better than the American public going forward. But for like, Fauci as an individual, what his personal accountability is, I think that there's a lot still, still to be unplumbed um, when it comes to gain-of-function research. Yeah, I mean, especially considering it's not up for dispute that the NIH was funding gain-of-function yeah. in Wuhan, although Fauci likes to quibble about the specific de definition of gain-of-function yeah. research when the way he describes what they were funding is gain-of-function. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't like use to use words. that term. Um, and if he lied about that, he test I mean, he testified to Congress previously where he said that they weren't doing that. And so there's a, a potential perjury case to be made here by uh, the Republicans in the House Oversight Committee. I also really want them to dig into the effects that this had in terms of these um, these deaths that were not related to COVID but occurred because of some of the policies that took place. Um, a rise in suicides, for example, especially among young teens. Um, a rise in, uh, in late-stage cancer diagnoses because people were encouraged not to go to the hospital unless they had COVID. They were encouraged not to go to the doctor, for example, to get routine health screenings mm. because they needed to make way for people who had COVID. And then the effect on kids who were pushed out of school um, at the direction of the CDC because they believed that children were like super spreaders of COVID. And it turns out that they were not only the least likely to have severe infection or death from COVID, but also were not uh, as, as likely vectors for the disease. And that schools were one of the safest places that kids could have been during the pandemic. Just looking at the data that we have now of how many secondary infections occurred in, in schools. Um, and we have probably a mental health crisis and a learning loss crisis that we haven't even begun to really reckon with. The New York Times of all, of all outlets, I mean, to see this in the mainstream media now, um, published a piece a couple of weeks ago where they acknowledged the massive, massive detriment that pandemic policy is going to have on kids for decades to come. And when kids at that age are unable to get access to education or some of the other resources that they have when they go to school, 
you can't just get that back. Um, those are such formative years that I, I think we're yet to really reckon with and see the, the true consequences of what we did to children. Yeah, I mean, I, I do always want to caveat this because I do think that we collapse the COVID timeframe and forget that there really was a year uh, during which there were no vaccines and that people were dying of COVID, including people who were otherwise healthy. It wasn't just um, this idea that there was a... Um, an overweight, diabetic, all of these, you know, pre-existing uh, conditions, uh, group of people that were exclusively the ones that were victimized. And also, it's also worth noting that a significant portion of the American public is dealing with those kind of preconditions, and their lives are not any less valuable, and they were genuinely vulnerable, and many of them continue to be vulnerable. But the question about how quickly policy should have changed once vaccines came out that dramatically limit, uh, decreased people's death from or severe uh, illness or hospitalization from COVID, I think that's a very legitimate question and what, what, how certain districts should be responsible for perhaps extending um, school cancellations for longer than was perhaps medically recommended or should have been re medically recommended at the time. One last point is that I really do hope Democrats consider whether or not they want to let this be a purely partisan exercise. The, the issue, the kind of salience of COVID in the political debates has diminished, I think, considerably over the last year or so since the mandates went out of effect and there seemed to be less of a linchpin to be angry at various things, rightly or wrongly. But the ongoing concerns about public health messaging and some of the funding practices of perhaps dangerous research shouldn't be owned by the Republican Party in a way that could diminish the legitimacy of Democrats going forward or if you enter another pandemic. And if you want to, to address the crisis in public confidence that exists post-pandemic, uh, vaccination rates for every other childhood disease are diminishing, they're at record lows now because of people's lack of confidence in public health, then you're going to have to stop allowing this to be a partisan exercise by making it a partisan exercise. And I'd like to see some Democrats engage in good faith in the question of Dr. Fauci in January. Sure. And now we have the military now begging people who were fired for being unvaccinated <laughs> to come back because, of course, there's a shortage. Yeah. And there were a lot of lives that were destroyed by the vaccine mandates by individuals who were um, had to choose between being able to support themselves and their family and whether or not they wanted to get this vaccine that was still an emergency use authorization. And then I would also just add one more point, which is that even before the vaccine came out, there was very good data on the susceptibility of children to catching serious cases of COVID and spreading it to others. And yet there were school districts that were closed for entire school years. College campuses in many cases had vaccine mandates for otherwise young and healthy people. Um, at the expense of, in some cases, people's ability to go to college. And uh, I have family members who were starting as freshmen in college during the uh, second year of the pandemic, 2021, and were basically locked in their dorm rooms all day and had to do all of their classes over Zoom while still paying exorbitant tuition. Um, so there's just so much that, yes, has been debated publicly, but um, maybe we haven't fully wrapped our heads around just the extent of the consequences of of the decisions made by people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, and I hope that this is the start of a longer conversation of how we prevent this massive failure of public health policy from happening again and restore trust in the system. We'll be back with more Rising after this.
it with Biden? Some White House staffers are reportedly irritated with the president's son, Hunter Biden, because he has begun to launch his legal and public relations strategy without consulting the West Wing. According to Politico, one former Joe Biden campaign aide said some of the White House are, quote, irritated that Hunter is being more aggressive because he is not clearing the tactics in the strategy. Mm. House Oversight and Accountability Committee Chair James Comer repeatedly, uh, reportedly said, rather, that if Hunter Biden were allowed to testify before the committee publicly, Democrats would be yelling and screaming during the hearing. Here's some more from Representative Comer on the investigation into Hunter Biden. We have tens of thousands of pages of documents where we need to sit down and ask specific substantive questions without filibustering, without interruptions, without going five minutes back and forth with, with Jamie Raskins and Dan Goldman and, and uh, little Moskowitz jumping up and down, uh, filing motions and trying to disrupt the committee hearings. This is very important. This is a credible investigation. This is substantive. We're doing this investigation the way it's supposed to be done. And the subpoena calls for Hunter Biden to come in for a deposition. And that's what we expect to have, a deposition where the transcripts will be released. When you have a deposition, the committee votes to release the transcripts. After the January 6th committee, the depositions were filmed. So this deposition will be filmed. This will be testifying in public, but not in a chaotic scene where the Democrats who have already demonstrated they can't uh, conduct themselves in a mature, credible manner during a hearing. So we expect the deposition. Then we'll have the public hearing that everybody wants to have. Joining us now to discuss is former special assistant to President Biden, Michael De La Rosa. Welcome back, Michael. For having me back. So first, let me ask you how true it is uh, that Hunter Biden is sort of moving forward through this process without advising or, or with the counsel of the office of the president? Is he really kind of going on a lark here and making the choice to say, hey, I want to have a public hearing? I don't know that it's his responsibility to coordinate with the White House. And in fact, the White House has been um, the sort of party here that has really tried to distance themselves from Hunter and Hunter questions and Hunter-related questions for the last two or three years and really have not mounted uh, a very aggressive defense of the president and his family and specifically Hunter. Um, so I don't blame Hunter and his team for moving on their own. I think it was the smart move. I think it's working. Uh, I think they have really gotten under the skin of Republicans and have really um, given Democrats uh, a, a reason to kind of crow a bit uh, because of the richness that, um, you know, you're seeing from Comer and the Republicans. I mean, the man is offering to come and testify just the same way that Neil Bush, the son of the sitting president, did in 1991 without a deposition. Um, and Hunter's willing to do it alone. Right. But in terms of a public hearing, you very well know, Michael, that the questions per member are limited. There's a big time limit. You don't get access to sensitive documents, or at least you can't read them into the record. So why not sit for a private deposition and then do the public hearing so that they can have these conversations about classified materials, potentially, have more time for member, be able to review all these documents, and then they can do the public hearing per Hunter's request? You can submit all, you can do all those things and submit them all for the record, for sure, and still have the public hearing. Um, I think the answer to your question, the why, is 
because of how the Republican majority really tried to um, misrepresent uh, Devin Archer's testimony after he testified behind closed doors. And you'll notice that they did not call Devin Archer back to testify in public because Devin Archer uh, pretty much confirmed everything that has been said all along that president did nothing wrong and Hunter Biden did nothing wrong. Uh, so that is why there is no, uh, that, that Comer does not want a public hearing, of course. Uh, I would also, push back if I were on them, your, well, let me I'd challenge you for nervous. a second, because yeah. you said that it was Republicans who misrepresented Devin Archer's testimony, but it was Democrat Dan Goldman who quoted Devin Archer as saying that there was the illusion of access, as opposed to actual access to the vice president between Hunter Biden's business associates and Joe sure. Biden. But Devin okay. Archer never said that. Um, so that was a, a massive misrepresentation that really took away this testimony from Devin Archer that there was legitimate access, not just the illusion of it. Well, actually, Devin Archer went on Tucker Carlson's show and said exactly that a couple hours later. So Goldman was, in fact, correct. I don't know if uh, Archer took his his approach or his words or what, but that is what Archer told uh, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, so what we're talking about here is this part of the transcript where um, Goldman asked, so is it fair to say that Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of access to his father? And uh, Archer replied, yes, initially. Well, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yes, correct, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't remember it word for word, but go ahead. Okay, and you're saying, uh, Amber, that Democrats are saying that it was an illusion, but actually it was more substantive than that? Well, because what, what Devin Archer continued on to say was that initially it was the illusion, but the access was actually granted through these business meetings and phone calls that Joe Biden was privy to or, or called in on on conference calls. And the, when Dan Goldman was going on television and talking about this testimony, he quoted Devin Archer as saying illusion of access when illusion of access was actually in his question to Devin Archer. I see. So what do you, what do you say to that, Michael? Archer also said that those phone calls that Hunter made to his father had nothing to do with business. And in fact, they were uh, conversations that he had every day with his father, and there was nothing business-related discussed at any of those things. I think at one dinner, they were actually, it was a, a dinner celebrating um, Save the Children. I don't think it had anything to do with business. And Devin Archer actually says that directly to Tucker Carlson and in the hearing. Well, Republican Congressman Andy Biggs weighed in on Hunter Biden's testimony uh, on Fox Business this week. Let's watch. No, I mean, this is a new lawyer for Hunter. It's a new plan, but it's the same old story. He's trying to obfuscate and distract. Look, we want to treat him the way every other witness has been treated. He's come in. He's going to give a closed-door deposition the way you would if you were litigating any matter, criminal or civil. And then if he still wants to go public, then I'm, I'm certain that we'll try to accommodate that. But you need to have a deposition where we get to ask questions. The Democrats get to ask questions. Uh, but it's not a five-minute uh, charade that so many congressional hearings are. This is actually to get at the truth. And so uh, his, his terms are unacceptable to me and I'm sure to Chairman Comer. MSNBC's Joanne Reed discussed the House investigation into Hunter Biden while on her show this week. The business partner said, no, President Biden didn't have anything to do with it. Everyone they've brought in so far that were supposed to be witnesses for the prosecution ended up being witnesses for the defense. Have you seen, uh, as a member of this committee, any evidence that President Biden has any involvement whatsoever in his son's companies or in his businesses? I have not. 
And it's a fishing uh, expedition. You know, one of the things that most people aren't talking about is he not only sent out this subpoena, he sent out a subpoena to the president's um, brother. He sent out subpoenas as well to um, Hunter's wife and so many family members. I mean, he is going after their entire family, just looking and hoping that somebody will slip up and say something that will give them a leg to stand on and be able to say, see, we told you. But that's not how the process works. What you're supposed to do is say, you know what? I see something and I need to dig in further. Right. Instead, they're saying we don't see anything. <laughs> but if we dig, maybe we'll finally find something. Yeah. I mean, I do take the point, your point, Michael, that, you know, it's a gamble whether or not a public hearing would actually redound to the benefit of the Biden family and Hunter Biden. But certainly we've had investigations going on for a long time now without a red herring. There are these moments where there is some inconsistency with between what Joe Biden has said. I've never been on a call. And then it turns out that he has been on calls, but not substantive calls. I mean, things like that, but certainly no smoking gun. So, uh, you know, I, I wonder if you think that it's a good strategic decision for, uh, for Hunter Biden to do a public hearing because it might expose the kind of lack of focus or lack of substance in the conservatives' approach. I think it's a it's a smart strategy. I think it's a good idea. I think I said this last spring to a reporter who asked me if Hunter would ever testify in public. And I said, I, I mean, I have no idea, but I wouldn't want to go up against Hunter Biden. He's a Yale-educated lawyer. And uh, also the, the attorneys on the Democratic side just absolutely, I mean, the Republican side just did not come prepared over this over the summer. And the attorneys like Dan Goldman and Jared Moskowitz and the congresswoman there, um, I would not want to go up against those those attorneys and Abby Lowell. Uh, these people are smart and brilliant at their craft. They've done this before. Dan Goldman led the impeachment, was the chief investigator for the impeachment of President Trump. Um, but who, by the way, we, it should be noted, by the way, that while Hunter Biden is being subpoenaed and is cooperating and trying to coordinate on how that is done. Uh, President Trump and his White House counsel uh, encouraged and asked all of the people subpoenaed in his White House not to cooperate. And in fact, Jim Jordan uh, subpoenaed it as well, also refused to, to cooperate and defied subpoenas. So um, I actually think it's a lot of progress that we've made uh, given the Trump uh, administrate, given what the Trump administration did um, in terms of transparency and cooperating with Congress, uh, it's pretty bold of Hunter to uh, agree to do it at all, given what Trump and his White House staff did. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thanks, Michael LaRosa, for joining us. We'll be following this. Israel's war in Gaza has been put on hold for another day after the temporary ceasefire negotiated between Hamas and the IDF was extended another 24 hours overnight. Sixteen more hostages kidnapped on October 7th were released by Hamas, including another American citizen. The IDF is currently investigating Hamas's claims that the youngest hostage from October 7th, 10-month-old Kafir Bibas, and his mother and four-year-old brother are dead as a result of an Israeli airstrike in Gaza. In a statement, the IDF has said Hamas is responsible for the safety of its hostages. Meanwhile, a Palestinian teenager and eight-year-old boy were shot and killed by Israeli forces conducting a raid in the West Bank. The IDF claims the boys were throwing explosives. Here's the deputy mayor of Jerusalem being questioned on the matter. 
We're talking about the release of attempted murderers. You call them children, but we're talking about teenagers who stabbed other teenagers. We're talking about... That's not my question, Deputy Mayor. I, 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 I totally and fully understand that they have been accused... I understand, but I, 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 and I, I, if I can, Deputy Mayor, I, Deputy Mayor, I'm just going to interrupt you. I, I'm fully aware. I'm fully aware of. I'm answering the Deputy Mayor. I'm fully aware of what they've been. Part of the deal was that there would be no celebrations. And the reason that these clashes are occurring is because exactly against the deal that there would be no celebrations celebrating the release of attempted murderers. Joining us now to weigh in is Executive Director at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Trita Parsi. Dr. Parsi, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Were you surprised to hear that the ceasefire was extended after these claims on both sides that, you know, the IDF is accused of shooting these, um, these individuals that they claim are terrorists? Hamas was involved in a shooting that killed three and injured six in Israel, and yet we have another 24-hour extension of the ceasefire. No, I wasn't surprised because one of the fears that the Netanyahu government had about a prisoner exchange was that it would boost the pressure in Israel itself for the Israeli government to prioritize prisoner exchanges over the bombardment of Gaza. Uh, up until the, the swap, the priority clearly was to go uh, and bomb Gaza rather than really prioritizing the prisoner exchanges. Now, when so many of them have been released, there's proof of concept. There was an expectation that it would galvanize the pressure on the government to really prioritize uh, the prisoner exchanges and see those uh, truces and, and swaps extended. So I'm not surprised that we're seeing that happening at this stage. The question is, will it change the thinking or force to change the thinking of the uh, uh, Netanyahu government in a deeper way that would prompted not to continue the warfare in southern Gaza after uh, all of the uh, hostages have been released. I mean, that's an important point you're alluding to there. I mean, wasn't it the case that there, uh, the Hamas offered a prisoner exchange weeks ago before thousands of additional civilians had been killed, but it had been rejected? The implication of that is that exactly what you're saying, that there was a priority to go ahead and have perhaps an ability or justification or rationale for a continued siege in lieu of actually getting back the hostages um, that have been having to endure uh, as hostages in Gaza. Absolutely. I mean, it was very clear that the real priority of the Israeli government was not to go and, and rescue the hostages, but to go after Hamas and, and, and uh, Gaza as a whole. Um, and so this prisoner swap was actually on the table for quite some time. And it was the Netanyahu government that refused to sign it because of their own issues. And as you saw, it took about seven hours of deliberations inside the coalition government before the government finally gave a yes to this deal. And there was a lot of resistance from some of the more far-right groups in the government who didn't want this in the first place. And again, part of the concern was that once you actually have swaps, the momentum will be so strong that going back to warfare might be more difficult. And that's something that some of the elements in the Israeli government didn't want to give up on. And as Politico has reported as well, similarly, there were concerns in the uh, Biden administration that once there would be a pause in the fighting or, or a pause in the bombing, 
uh, more reporters would be able to go in and actually see what had happened in Gaza. And those images would be terrible as they were, and that, that will further galvanize public and global opinion to put a stop to this war permanently. I want to go back to uh, the clip that we played uh, at the beginning, where there was discussion of this incident that happened where a released Palestinian hostage went home and was shot. And the Israeli official that we were just listening to was saying that that was seemed to be arguing that it was justified on the basis that they had imposed a rule that there could be no celebrating the release of those Palestinian prisoners in East Jerusalem. Therefore, it was, I suppose, justified to go ahead and shoot uh, at uh, alleged celebrants. Can you unpack what's going on there? Why is it that there are is the possibility of creating these kind of edicts by Israel on um, Palestinians who are living in East Jerusalem? And is that indicative of the kind of lifestyle that Palestinians are used to living in the, in the area? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, we can say that increasingly um, the Israeli government is not caring about any international norms whatsoever and is not being pressured to care about them, at least not pressured enough. So to go on an interview and justify the shooting uh, of a former prisoner because they violated apparent rule of no celebrations and seeing that as a really strong argument tells you uh, how far they have gone in a direction um, that makes them diverge from the rest of the world, uh, including the United States, I would say. Um, on the issue of the celebrations, I think that's also very important. I think what we're seeing Israel's conduct being right now is very much driven by the specific concerns of the most hardline elements in that government. And what they were afraid of was that a prisoner swap would be seen and would be perceived as a victory for Hamas. And as a result, they wanted to make sure that there were no celebrations or images of that, and, and apparently going as far as shooting a former prisoner for having violated that uh, apparent uh, rule of the swap. But that tells you something of where this is. This is more about appearances than really what's happening on the ground, and, and that's extremely dangerous. Now, Dr. Parsi, President Biden has firmly come out against conditioning humanitarian aid to Israel, despite previously quipping that the idea was worthwhile. This, as a former Israeli uh, PM, uh, Naftali Bennett, told Jake Tapper that the IDF's plans are to totally disarm and to, quote, denazify Gaza after the war. Israel would retain overall security and defense responsibility, but we don't want to govern the Gazans. So what I think we would do is create an interim technocratic uh, self-government that, that would, uh, say, for about five years uh, govern Gaza, denazify Gaza, which means uh, clean out all the incitement, all the education that all Jews are pigs and devils, and after five years, we would revisit and figure out how to create a, a sustainable uh, government. Yeah, and, and this is the language that also Putin was using in Ukraine. And we remember how people in Washington reacted to that when the word and the term denazification was being used. I think we're seeing a clear pattern here in which the administration uh, puts forward some very limited pressures. Uh, tries to make a big deal out of it uh, in the American press, and the Israelis, by and large, completely ignore those pressures. Um, and and it's, it's not working. Uh, the idea that this is the approach to actually be able to hold Israel accountable uh, is clearly not working, because when it comes to actually doing the real things that would matter, which such as 
conditioning aid or actually having consequences when the Israelis are not abiding by what the United States is saying. There we see that the Biden administration is not willing to put forward any real pressure. And as a result, this conflict has gone on more than 50 days now. It likely will continue again at some point, despite the fact that the Biden administration has said that they don't want to see Israel governing Gaza. They don't want to see any territorial changes. Certainly, that is not something that the Israelis indicate that they have agreed to. In fact, uh, uh, Netanyahu is openly bragging that the main strength he has is that he's the one that can prevent a Palestinian state from being created. So while the Biden administration talks about how it's pursuing uh, a two-state solution, which it's not, uh, and saying that the Netanyahu government is a partner in that. Well, according to the Netanyahu government, they're not a partner in that because they're explicitly saying that they're going to try to prevent a two-state solution, which is exactly what they have been doing for the last 10 plus years. What is the role of the Hamas leader in Gaza saying the leaders of the occupation should know October 7th was just a rehearsal? What, what is that role does that play into this conflict now and uh, Israel's response to what's been happening? I mean, I can't imagine how that would potentially lead to uh, reducing the inflamed tensions? Certainly not. It's, it's an inflammatory language. It certainly doesn't help uh, uh, any form of de-escalation. It plays into uh, the Israeli argument that all of these different uh, uh, ceasefires or pauses are actually going to uh, only help Hamas regroup and, and launch new attacks, uh, etc. But it's clearly that he's playing to a completely different audience, uh, an audience that sees these attacks as having fundamentally changed the Israeli-Palestinian equation. Because prior to this, there was no equation. The Palestinians were not there at all. We saw how the United States was pursuing uh, the Abram Accords under Trump, and then under the Biden administration, they doubled down on it. And a critical component and a fundamental assumption of that was that the Palestinians simply didn't matter any longer. So the focus should be to try to integrate Israel into the economic structures of the Middle East and the political and security structures of the Middle East without solving the Israeli-Palestinian issue because it simply wasn't that relevant any longer. Uh, what we've seen over the course of the last 50 days, of course, that that has fundamentally changed. And anyone who is under the illusion that we can go back to the previous formula and just ignoring the Palestinian issue um, uh, should not be in power, in my view, because it's clear that approach unfortunately contributed to the very, very deadly scenario that we're facing right now. Mm. Dr. Trita Parsi, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Henry Kissinger, a titan of American foreign policy, pioneer of realpolitik, and lightning rod for controversy, has died. He was 100 years old. Kissinger was a Jewish immigrant who fled Nazi Germany in 1938 and made history as the only person to serve simultaneously as White House National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. In those capacities, he participated in secret negotiations leading to the 1973 Paris Agreement, ending U.S. involvement in Vietnam, helped stabilize relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors, coordinated Nixon's opening to China, and pioneered detente with the Soviet Union. 
But Kissinger had his detractors. Many point out that Kissinger's seeming lack of concern for human life and willingness to destabilize countries over American interests was a problem and called him a war criminal as a consequence. Critics held Kissinger responsible for the secret bombing campaign in Cambodia that destabilized the country and allowed for the rise of the Khmer Rouge and that he was responsible for the CIA coup that overthrew the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende in Chile, as well as other covert actions around the globe. Um, yeah, this was one of those uh, days online that big Twitter users say that the app was meant for, because I do think there's a—apart from people who are part of the, I'd say, establishment in either party, most human beings see his legacy as one that is very negative. Um, that perceive him to be a war criminal, and much of what was circulating online were various statements of people stretching over the course of 70 years, because he has been in the public eye for so long, who have had interactions with him, where they've called him out for being a war criminal, where they have articulated why it is that they have so much animus for him, because they have spent time in some of the regions of the world that he had a hand in causing devastation to. What do you, what do you make of the response to his death? I'm always troubled by I guess I would say the glee with which some people react to political figures who they disagree with. Um, I've never found that to be particularly tasteful, but um, I do think Kissinger has presided over some some pretty awful decision making. Um, and it's interesting when you uh, read biographies of him or listen to historians who have covered him, they, they kind of describe this individual who perhaps in the first half of his career was pretty idealistic. He had these ideas of beating back communism, of bringing freedom to the world, and then perhaps became drunk on power and lost sight of the human toll that was, that was the consequence of some of these decisions. For example, in the war in Vietnam, right, Henry Kissinger, um, along with President Nixon, had this idea of bringing about an end to the war. But they also um, conducted these bombing campaigns in Cambodia because Cambodia was seen as harboring the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong troops and supplies that they would bring into South Vietnam. Um, and that caused a whole bunch of destabilization in the region that potentially led to the rise of Pol Pot, which, of course, resulted in the death of millions um, through his communist regime. Um, they did ultimately get out of the Vietnam War, but with little to show for it, right? And there's speculation and reporting, I guess you could say, that Kissinger continued the bombing far longer than was necessary. And after they had reached a deal to pull out American troops in exchange for the re release of hostages, because he basically wanted to give the impression that America was still powerful, even as it left somewhat shamefully from the conflict. And the conflict, of course, ended with uh, the North Vietnamese winning anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I should— I feel compelled to say that I, I think that many folks question whatever you think of communism, the right of the United States to interfere with the democratic choices or even the non-democratic choices of other countries around the globe. Um, and that kind of interventionist foreign policy has led to innumerable deaths around the world and often our re regime change attempts, as you just articulated, don't actually result in a better quality of life for the people in the regions that we claim we're saving for democracy. Um, Anthony Bourdain, the famous um, lover of food uh, chef, uh, who also died uh, tragically, once gave a quote about Kissinger that has been doing the rounds, because I do think it encompasses a lot of people's feelings about him. He said, once you've been to Cambodia, a place that he traveled a lot uh, for its food culture, 
He said, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. And I, I do think that in that quote, you get a sense of the frustration of what it means for someone to have a direct connection with so much global suffering and also to be accepted so warmly in the upper echelons of polite society. So if you, you know, steal bags from Target or get in a fistfight at a bar, you can be perceived as persona non grata. But if you are directly tied to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people around the world, you can still be referred to by Hillary Clinton famously on the debate stage in 2016 as my friend. And Bernie Sanders' choice in that same debate to say, well, I'm proud to say Henry Kissinger is not my friend, stood out because of what a rarity it is for people in politics to be willing to even observe, to even point out, to even acknowledge um, the record of the people that they're walking through the halls with and the, and the, the hu very human toll of the policy decisions that are made in very clean, sterile, polite environments. I do think that sometimes the elevation of Kissinger as sort of the boogeyman of American foreign policy in that time period does let other people off the hook. I mean, sure. particularly in Cambodia, I think people sort of brush over what the Khmer Rouge, Rouge did by blaming Kissinger for their rise in that country. And then you have people like Brzezinski, um, you know, promoting disunity in Africa because it was helpful for American interests, supposedly. You have Nixon, LBJ, and Ford, who were all in office during, you know, the Viet Vietnam War and conflict with Vietnam and continued and perpetuated what happened there. And so I, I feel like sometimes people like to focus their efforts on one target that they see as distinctly evil without properly contextualizing American foreign policy at the time and all of the players that were involved in it. That being said, I mean, one of the common, I guess, victories people would point to as an accomplishment under Kissinger's watch was the softening of relations with China. And this was viewed as a, a huge move of strategic genius because the Soviet Union was on the rise and splitting up China and the Soviet Union and developing a decent relationship between America and China ahead of the Cold War really helped to isolate the Soviet Union and weaken them as they went into that conflict. At the same time, we also are now living with the consequences of the normalization of our relationship with China, where over the following years under Clinton and the elder Bush, they opened the economy up so much with China that they became this really industrialized economy. They were formerly very agrarian, didn't have much power, and now they're one of our biggest geopolitical rivals. Um, so it, it really is, um, I think, fascinating that Kissinger lived long enough to see the long-term ramifications of some of the foreign policy decisions that he made, and he was very unapologetic about everything that happened under his his advisory position to these various presidents. Yeah, I mean, one last point I think is worth mentioning is that the obituary um, that the ADL put out um, saying that he was a towering intellect, diplomat and practitioner, yada, 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 got struck with a community note, uh, partly because you know, a lot of people were commenting about the inconsistency between kind of heralding the guy as a 
you know, a Jewish icon, someone, you know, who escaped Nazi Germany, when he said so many comments that were, frankly, kind of disparaging to Jewish people. The community note reads um, that he once said, if I were not for the, uh, not for the accident of my birth, if it, no, sorry, if it were not for the accident of my birth, I would be anti-Semitic. Any people who has been per persecuted for 2,000 years must be doing something wrong. That wasn't the only time he said something along those lines. He publicly, in 1985, supported Reagan's wreath-laying ceremony at a military cemetery in Pittsburgh, West Germany, where members of the SS were buried. This was opposed by the Holocaust Museum at the time, not by uh, Henry Kissinger. He made a comments in 2011, relatively uh, recently, or rather, they were published relatively recently, I think it actually happened in the 70s, where he expressed—he's uh, irked by concern expressed by American Jews about the fate of Soviet um, Jews, saying that the former were self-serving bastards, so not a lot of solidarity there on a kind of ethnic or a racial uh, or a religious front there. So it's interesting to see him kind of get a sort of hagiography that breezes over some of the—I don't know. I, frankly, unflattering comments that he's made about a group that is now going out of its way to extend a kind of in-group condolence. But I'm sure that these kind, this commentary, the discussion about his legacy will not be ending anytime soon. It's obviously hasn't even been 24 hours since he passed away. Um, so continue to tune in, and we'll have more Rising for you right after this. If there's one thing Americans can all agree on, left, right, and center, it's that everything is too damn expensive. But where the blame for the economic malaise goes is a matter of debate. Former Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake placed the blame squarely at Joe Biden's feet, tweeting, food, transportation, housing, and energy are the basic necessities we need to survive. Thanks to Bidenomics, we're spending an extra $11,400 annually on them. No amount of gaslighting from Joe Biden can distract from the fact that we can barely afford to keep the lights on. But Biden hit back at GOP critics, namely Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, taking credit for what his administration sees as a booming economy. Let's listen. The historic investments we're celebrating today is in Congressman Boebert's district. She's one of the leaders of this extreme mega movement. She, along with every single Republican colleague, voted against the law that made these investments and jobs possible. And that's not hyperbole, that's a fact. And then she voted to repeal key parts of this law. And she called this law a massive failure. You all know you're part of a massive failure? Tell that to the 850 Coloradans who get new jobs in Pueblo and CS Win thanks to this law. Tell that to the local economy that's going to benefit from these investments. This feels like one of those everybody's a little bit right and everybody's a little bit wrong ones for me. I think it's absolutely true, uh, the CBS report, that people require another, another $11,400 uh, uh, $11, a year to feel as financially save as they did in 2021 is absolutely true. And the Biden administration trying to gaslight people out of that reality isn't working. There are sectors in which the economy has rebounded. But if you discreetly look at some of these areas like housing costs and food costs, core costs for Americans and families, those are up. And you can't just hand wave that away. At the same time, I think it is true that Republicans do like to exploit these kinds of economic downturns and blame Democrats for them without putting forward any policies of their own that would actually ameliorate the conditions people are complaining about. Mm, yeah, I do think Republicans should do a better job of sharing what their economic strategy 
would be, um, I just find it mind-boggling that the Biden administration, for one, has decided to trot out this term Bidenomics <laughs> when people recognize that the economy is really bad. And you have polling consistently showing that voters trust Trump and pretty much any Republican candidate more than Biden on the economy. To then run on the economy is like just political strategy, like idiocy <laughs> at its core. I mean, yeah. it's just really really amazing. And then also the Biden administration, um, as you said, really downplaying Americans' concerns and not taking them seriously. I mean, for them to put out that infographic ahead of Thanksgiving, where they touted the cost of Thanksgiving dinner being down this year from last year, when it's still markedly more expensive than when Biden took office, it's very similar to the way they talk about inflation, right? They say, oh, inflation is down. Okay, well, inflation was at under 2% when Biden took office and then skyrocketed to 9% and is now down to 3%. So prices are still rising more quickly than than they were when you took office, celebrating the fact that inflation is down as Americans are paying so much more for basic necessities is yeah. very insulting. Yeah, I, I interviewed um, months ago an economic expert um, named uh, Fidel Kaboob, and he was explaining to me that inflation is really driven by four main sectors right now, and it's like education, healthcare, uh, transportation, um, and I think food was the fourth sector. And if you think about that, that is exactly those pressure points that Americans are complaining about. The cost of cars are astronomical. A, a, a used um, Subarus going for like $40,000. The cost of housing is at unprecedented highs. They, it's considered to be um, appropriate to pay no more than a third of your income on housing costs. People routinely paying 50% or more of their uh, income on housing costs. Education, whatever you think about the um, policy to cancel student debt or whether or not people should go to college or whether it was their own fault, it is something that people are living with. And the failure of Joe Biden's plan to cancel student debt is really hitting people in the pocketbooks. And you can say, well, that's not his fault. That was the Supreme Court. I would quibble with that. But even if you believe it's not his fault, it certainly was his fault to turn on the student lo uh, the loans uh, back on in the moratorium that Donald Trump put into effect back in 2020, which was really easing people's financial burden. Um, and of course, we've discussed uh, food costs already. So, you know, at the end of the day, Biden is responsible for all of those kinds of things. Biden has to speak to those very real concerns. Oh, healthcare, healthcare is the last cost. Now, I will say Joe Biden has done on the margins, some things to cap the prices of certain medic medications like insulin costs. And it, it is worth noting that when you look at what Republicans are proposing on the alternative, Donald Trump, who has had now six, seven years to come up with an alternative to Obamacare, is still just saying, I would repeal Obamacare, get away, give up protections for pre-existing conditions, kicking people off their health care um, that people can stay on now until they're 26 years old. Um, you know, getting rid of all of the benefits of it without coming up with an alternative plan, I think that's a mistake. And, and again, voters are going to have to see if the alternative is actually better than the status quo. But the fundamental criticism that Biden hasn't done enough on those four areas, I think, is very legitimate. Yeah. I mean, I was on Obamacare for a bit when I was an independent contractor, and it's stunningly expensive. It is expensive. Um, especially for, I mean, as a young, single, healthy person at the time, it was 
insane how much I was paying in premiums for relatively poor health insurance compared to, so growing up, my dad was in a union, so mm -hmm. we had great health insurance. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was grandfathered in, thanks to some Republican negotiation, mind you, during uh, the whole Obamacare debate. And so we were lucky to have that, but a lot of people lost their plans and had to go into the exchange and got comparatively worse health care as a result. I 100% agree, the Republicans have a huge opportunity on this issue that they have not taken. And I, uh, I reported during the Trump administration that it was the Heritage Foundation and a few other conservative groups that were trying to cobble together some idea of a health care plan to replace Obamacare. Of course, that conversation was pretty moot at that point because after McCain voting down the skinny repeal, no one had a really an appetite to revisit the issue. But I hope that it comes back into the fold I mean, because look, it's, I mean, it's a serious problem for it, Americans serious, still to this it's day. It's a serious problem. And part of the issue is that we already have the Republican health care plan because Obamacare was just Romney care. So no wonder Republicans are struggling to come up with an alternative. I would argue, and as would 49% of Republicans and 88% of Democrats, that the answer here is to get the kind of negotiated benefits that many unions enjoy in the form of a universal health care program where costs are brought down because everyone, including young, healthy people, buy into the program and bring down costs. And part of the issue with Obamacare is that without that mandate, which I know is a scary word and people object to for various reasons, um, you do not have the cost savings. There has to be a kind of collective choice as a community whether or not we want to live with a system where your ability to stay employed is tied to your ability to keep a job in this economy, <laughs> it's tied to your ability to to keep a job, and especially given that when you're sick, oftentimes you can no longer work and your whole family is then jeopardized, their health is then jeopardized because you can no longer um, work. Is that the kind of system that we want to have, or do we think that some things should be outside of the profit motive? And one of those is whether or not you, as an American citizen, can get treatment for a debilitating, perhaps deadly disease when you're sick, regardless of if you're too, forward to, uh, too poor rather, to afford treatment. Yeah, and just to bring this conversation back around to the Bidenomics and, and, and the economy, um, to your point about the the issue with with jobs right now, one of the other really slap in the face thing that I think the Biden administration has done is take credit for all of the jobs that returned after the pandemic and say that Biden created them as a part of Bidenomics, and it's just another constant source of frustration for me to see how they routinely try to take credit for um, what, are, what couldn't even be considered victories because it was just the economy naturally returning to its pre-COVID state. And meanwhile, we still have all of these issues with inflation and interest rates and, and housing prices and, and so many other uh, really detrimental aspects to the economy that they um, try to reject credit for, and you can't really have it both ways. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that every Republican, uh, sorry, every candidate, every uh, president, rather, gets into office and claims credit for things that are oftentimes just the, the swings flow, of a, right. a, the economy, and certainly nobody was responsible for the pandemic. It was a, as a global uh, crisis. I would much prefer people talk about the things that they very much do have control over, and on that score, I think Biden really is failing. Stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. President Donald Trump is under fire from the DeSantis campaign for accepting the endorsement of a BLM co-founder out of Rhode Island. Trump said on Truth Social that he spoke with Mark Fisher yesterday, a great guy, very honored to have his and BLM support. I have done more for black people than any other president since Lincoln, including 10-year funding for historically black colleges and universities where they had none, opportunity zones, 
criminal justice reform, and much more. Thank you to Mark. Uh, the DeSantis campaign responded by calling it a confusing love fest between Donald Trump and BLM's extremist leaders. Um, they released a statement, of course, criticizing Trump for accepting that endorsement, saying that they were responsible for rioting in 2020, so why would you allow them to endorse you and be so excited about it? Look, Trump loves a riot. Do you remember when six? <laughs> like, what's, what's the difference? If everyone wants to draw these comparisons, look, this whole thing is kind of um, silly, starting right. with what the implications are supposed to be if, for Trump getting this endorsement. What does it mean that Trump is now sympathetic to BLM? We're supposed to believe that their interests are aligned. We're supposed to believe this man represents the interests of BLM. Even before you get into all of the BLM chapters, apparently, disavowing that this guy uh, was a co-founder. So when they say co-founder, what they mean is that he, alleged, he alleges that he co-founded the BLM Rhode Island chapter, right. um, and the Rhode Island chapter made a statement on Twitter saying that we'd like to clarify that Mark Fisher is not and has never been affiliated with our organization. The views expressed by Mr. Fisher in the referenced Fox News segment do not reflect the values or beliefs of BL BLM Rhode Island PAC. So uh, e e even if you do have this guy's endorsement, why would Trump go out of his way to kind of tout it on Truth Social? I just, I feel like People kind of forget that Trump is sort of a, like, extremely pragmatic populist guy. He's not really an ideologue. And so I think he just likes that this guy likes him. And he's like, yeah, BLM likes me now, even though I've, like, brought in the National Guard to put down riots. And he just doesn't care. I, I actually, I think the DeSantis campaign's response is um, kind of indicative of how very online they have been and how that has not served DeSantis very well on the campaign trail. I mean, to really, like, handering about it and get on their, their soapbox is a, a little ridiculous. But I think we actually have the clip of um, the, the original endorsement on Fox News from Mark Fisher. So let's take a look at that. I think personally, it's the duplicity of the Democrats, mm. the hypocrisy. Um, we're not stupid. The brothers are not stupid. We, we understand when someone's for us and when someone is not. And it's obvious that the Democratic Party is not for us. Yeah, I, I their, party, their, their policies actually strike at the heart of the black family and the nuclear family. Yeah, so... You know, you were a part of Black Lives Matter. Uh, you founded it there. And now you're saying, you're, you're not saying the entire Republican Party. You're saying Donald Trump. So what is it about Donald Trump? Is it the economics? Uh, you noted the black family. What is it going to take for him to sure up this support amongst uh, black voters? Well, I just, I just think that it's going to take information. A lot of people are misinformed. They don't really understand because they don't educate themselves on, on Donald Trump as a person and his history. Um, but if they do that, and it's going to take, you know, leaders, educated leaders getting the word out there, um, I think that it, it'll happen on its own and it'll be organic because um, personally, I love the man. I mean, how could you not like? So it's clear when you watch that clip what this is all about. It seems like people are hopeful, conservatives are hopeful, at least this Fox News pundit and Donald Trump are hopeful that this endorsement could be a gateway to Donald Trump doing better with black voters. I think the problem with that is 
that guy doesn't represent, I mean, everyone's an island, you know, that guy doesn't represent black voters. They don't think any black voter turning into Fox News is going to say, well, if that guy's on board, <laughs> uh, I am too, especially given that they're really stretching this uh, co-founder of Black the Lives Matter. The connection BLM, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's why, again, like the DeSantis response is so annoying because they're like making hay out of something that's a very tenuous connection at this point. Um, and it, look, Trump is doing better with black voters right. than pretty much I was any other say, person I'm, with 20 percent of the black vote at, per recent polls. So, like, Trump is go good without this. And I think it's largely because of people's disaffectation with the Democratic Party mo more so than what Donald Trump is doing per se. But it, there is something that strikes me as very interesting that despite all of the criticism of kind of woke politics and identity politics and all of those things that you get coming from the right, when there is an opportunity to hold up yes. a person from a marginalized group Ugh. and say, this, we got one. And like tokenize it. I know. One. They'll and do it. it. It drives me insane. And like, if there's any criticism I think of Trump to be had here, because I, I like arguing that accepting the endorsement for Mark Fisher is like a tacit endorsement of any violence that might have occurred from BLM protest um, is, again, very tenuous. But the, the way that he talks about his accomplishments sometimes for the black community, as he puts oh, yeah. it, is uh, very pandering. I mean, the, the listing of the opportunity zones and the criminal yes. justice reform. And um, a lot of populist right individuals, myself included, ahead of the 2020 election, were very critical of the campaign that Trump ran. And he kind of lost himself the election because he really— the strategy that was pushed to him and he accepted from people like Jared Kushner in the administration was that he could win solely by trying to boost his numbers with minority voters. Mm. And from a strategic standpoint, from a realistic standpoint, getting a 1% to 2% gain among black voters is not enough votes to win you an election. I, mean, I don't know. It's enough to cost Democrats an election, and that's the but same the, thing. But that's a, I mean, that's a larger portion of their base, though. I mean, but that, and, but and the people, the but I think the people that would have per, perhaps voted for Trump because of opportunity zones and criminal justice reform yeah, were not people that were going to defect from Biden. I, I agree. I, I agree in part. I mean, I, look, I do think that Donald Trump needs to create a credible veneer that he doesn't hate black people to get even kind of these marginal sympathy votes or um, protest votes. And to that extent, doing something for criminal justice. He did, working with um, Van Jones and right. Kim Kardashian, get a bunch of people out of jail who Obama could have pardoned but didn't. I mean, that stuff isn't nothing. And seeing him standing there and doing that and saying, oh, he let Alice Johnson out. He got that black grandmother out of jail. I don't think that's nothing. At the same time, like, I, I, it is, it is, I think, a betrayal of the fundamental kind of ethos that Republicans have been putting, been putting out there, that we want to be colorblind, we want to be raceblind, that we don't care about all of this stuff, until obviously it comes to the nitty-gritty of earning votes. Your, to your point, Donald Trump is the guy who said, I have a great relationship with the blacks. I've always had a great relationship <laughs> with the blacks. I mean, he's that guy. Yeah. But he's also the guy who, before he started getting into politics, was in a bunch of—he was, was a cultural icon. He was, yeah. a, he was in Home Alone. He was in a ton of rap songs. Right. And he has a certain kind of um, bravado and a kind of confidence that I think makes a lot of people from a lot of different communities want to buy into a shtick, not to mention the fact that he is also doing very well with Latino voters. Sure. And that is— integral to the future of the Republican Party. And he desegregated Mar-a-Lago before that was like 
And it, what do you mean? He, it mar so all the, the clubs in Florida were, were segregated um, up into like the 80s or 90s, and Trump was actually the first to desegregate his club in, in uh, the I bet area. there's a story there. I bet there was one black celebrity who said something and nice possibly, to Donald Trump. But and the, Donald Trump the, was the like, city, let's bring him the in. The city actually like, <laughs> wanted to sue him for, for desegregating. It was a huge deal because um, when the Sheldon Whitehouse story came up about his club being segregated, oh, right. uh -huh. um, he tried to like turn it around on Trump, and it didn't work because of what happened in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> but um, I, I guess— doesn't absolve him for—the first time he was ever written up in the New York Times, it was because he was a slumlord over a segregated house. Yeah, I Texas. mean, I, I, guess, I guess point being, <laughs> like, potato. I guess point being, like, he wasn't— this, um, like, a lot of people kind of perceive him as being this, like, crusty old Republican when, it, like, it, like you said— He was a Democrat. In pop culture and, in, and in his business. Like, he was actually kind of novel in the way that he treated his relationships with people of color. But I would also, I guess, ask—I mean, we're running short on time, but I've, do you think that perhaps the reason he's performing better in the polls now with Latinos and black voters, um, particularly Latino and black men— is because there hasn't been as much pandering and there's more economic strife that is sort of equally affecting of all Americans, but particularly like working class people of color? I honestly don't think it's that, that complicated. I think Obama happened, people were very disappointed and became more disaffected because they thought, well, if there's a black guy in charge, then maybe someone will actually listen to our concerns. Mm. That did not happen. He was followed up by Obama's choice for VP, who was chosen specifically because he has a history of being, frankly, an ally of segregationists and not exactly the most woke guy on the planet who was supposed to balance out people's concerns about having a black president. That guy is now president walking around talking about how you're, you ain't black right. if you don't vote for me and telling weird, creepy stories about how he worked at an integrated school uh, pool and all the white ki all the black kids rather like to feel his blonde leg hairs. Mm -hmm. That's who Joe Biden is. So I think that it's as much Joe Biden turning people off as Donald Trump at least having cultural capital with lots of people in a pop culture way, including black people. Um, and I also think that Donald Trump, going back to this original story, he's a guy, like it or not, who if you say a nice thing to him, he'll like you. And sometimes that can have good benefits. That's how he ended up waving those pride flags and being like the oh, most pro-gay Republican. Because some gay Republican somewhere said, hey, I like the cut of your jib. And he said, you know what? Give me that flag. <laughs> and that's how progress is made sometimes. I don't know, man. All right, stick around. We're rising for you after this. The Mehdi Hassan show has been canceled at MSNBC as part of a major revamping of the network's primetime lineup. Hassan's Sunday hour will be replaced with an ensemble show called The Weekend, hosted by Simone Sanders Townsend, Alicia Menendez, and Michael Steele. Hassan, on the other hand, will shift to a fill-in anchor role per report. Now, the internet is going two ways about this. On one hand, Mehdi Hassan has not always been the biggest fan, uh, I think a fair uh, advocate or interlocutor when it comes to talking about some issues uh, that are germane to the interests of the right. It, he is more far left than most of the other commentators at MSNBC, 
And some of us on the left have a soft, soft spot for him for that reason. He used to be a colleague of mine at The Intercept. But it's also true that he is perceived to be um, ultimately a kind of vote blue no matter who, establishment-preserving character, even if on various issues. I think as a British person, he can be impassioned about universal health care and policies that are very normal in other parts of the world. Um, as a brown person, he has been an advocate of uh, a lot of uh, issues that are germane to Arabs and Muslims around the world, including in the conflict in Gaza, uh, but holistically has stayed away from making really sharp criticisms of the Democrat Democratic administrations that would lead to anyone to make a choice to vote for anybody other than them. So it's a mixed bag. What do you think about this? I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, I, I just see on the social media chatter, I, I'm not like an avid consumer of MSNBC, at least not since my days as a media reporter, thank God. My <laughs> mental health is much better for watching less cable news in general. Um, but it, it seems like the a lot of the consensus from uh, Medi sympathizers, I guess you can say, on social media is the suggestion that he was fired or had his position changed because of his support of Palestine mm -hmm. versus Israel in the conflict. Mm -hmm. And um, I, we were talking a little bit before the segment. You're, you're not sure that that is merited. Well, here's the issue. So uh, Semaphore was reporting that um, there are three Muslim hosts, basically. And early in the, the Gaza conflict, it was reported that all three had been sidelined ostensibly because of their takes on the issue. Because they might have been perceived as biased or— Well, right. I mean, yeah. of course, no Jewish hosts were sidelined for being biased. No people with articulated Zionist leanings were sidelined for being biased. Um, but it seemed to be the case that if you are any other group, that it's like a—historically, a lot of people of color have been concerned that— there was this perception that white people are neutral and they can cover the news, but if you're a person of color, then you know only some biases matter. Let's let's say that all, all biases aren't treated equally. Um, so when that accusation was made, when it was reported that they had been sidelined because of their views, none of them corroborated it, but none of them denied it publicly, hmm. which seemed to me to give it some air of validity. And then they were all back on the air. I think one of the hosts actually was traveling at the time, so it seems like they might not have been sidelined at all. But they ended up all being back on the air. Now, uh, one of those three uh, hosts, uh, Ayman uh, Mohideen, his weekend program is being expanded to two hours to replace Mehdi's show. So to the extent that there's an argument that you will have fewer um, Muslim voices on TV, or fewer uh, voices that are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause on TV, at least from a pure time perspective, it's not entirely clear that that's a credible argument. We'll see how it pans out, though. Yeah, I, I think to the extent that the criticisms of MSNBC are legitimate, I mean, there is a wider problem in cable news more generally of um, underrepresented voices in terms of ideology not being elevated. I mean, at Fox, for example, Tucker was really the only mm -hmm. populist right voice, and we saw what happened to him. Um, it's similar on CNN and MSNBC, where you only really have establishment figures from both sides of the political mm -hmm. spectrum. Like um, CNN will claim that they have these very diverse panels ideologically, and they have, you know, like, 10 former spooks and then one, like, token Republican strategist who 
um, is like very vocally never Trump. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, they love a riot now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or, or they like try to reform former, like former Republicans because, you know, like liberal wine moms love the former Republicans. Case in point, this new show that they're replacing Medi with, with Michael Steele. Right. So this, this, look at the lineup here. You have Simone <laughs> Sanders, who used to work for Bernie Sanders in 2016 in my, firm, in my position as national press secretary, flew the coop and went to work for the Joe Biden campaign, antithetical to everything that Bernie stood for, and perhaps in reward for that, got this, this position on these these positions that he's been, sure. she's been having on these MSNBC shows. So you have a, a never Bernie person, <laughs> you have a reformed Trump person, and Michael Steele, the the best kind of reform, Wait, or the reformed Republican. Reformed Republican. He was always anti-Trump. Trump, a never Trumper, yeah. right? Um, in the form of Michael Steele, and then I guess you have the third uh, person who I guess is a, a good a good liberal in the in the spot who, who was always um, flown straight and true. But that is the formula that they love on MSNBC. And when we're talking about bias, your point is correct. If you have a bias of having worked as a lobbyist, if you have a bias of having worked for the defense industry, MSNBC is more than happy to have you on and never give any um, explanation and not give any um, uh, transparency as to who you've worked for in the past or what has brought you to people's television screens. But if you are... Muslim, <laughs> if you are of Arab descent, if you are a person from a different kind of a world that might, part of the world that might have had a different sort of life experience, then it's pres presumed that there's a bias that's built in that it is that is inappropriate. And Mehdi Hassan, in addition to just being, you know, a, a Muslim commentator, happens to be one of the most adversarial, I think, competent and effective interviewers. That's on TV, period. Like, whatever you think about the slant of his politics, he's very good at his job. It makes it very difficult for people to come on his show and prevaricate and lie to the public, which is most of what you see when you turn on the cable news. And so it's hard to deny that there's going to be something that's missing having less Mehdi Hassan on TV. There will be less accountability on the news if there's less Mehdi Hassan on TV. But I'm not entirely—I think it, it, it bears— reporting out whether or not this is really about trying to silence a unique voice on the platform or whether this is about ratings. Apparently, uh, Semaphore also reported that his ratings have never been especially high despite his kind of online right. popularity um, and just about business. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand that he has lost several shows in the past because ratings haven't been great. He tends to, I guess, go more viral on social media with some clips of his interviews, some of which I've seen. I found some of the interviews of right-wing individuals to be a little bit in bad faith, but that's probably to be expected. Um, so, I mean, if you're on cable news and you can't draw advertisers um, because your ratings are low, I mean, yeah. that's a death knell for anybody. It doesn't matter what your politics are. That being said, I think just generally, my kind of view on cable news is like, I'd rather, even if I vehemently disagree with someone or I find them to be in bad faith, I'd almost rather them be on the air than just your typical like establishment lib and, and conservative lineup that we see on these networks repeatedly. Because, I mean, you watch, you can watch three hours of MSNBC, three hours of Fox News, and after a point, it all starts to just repeat itself and mm -hmm. sound exactly the same. And it's too bad because there's still a significant swath of the American population 
that watches these shows on a very regular basis. And it really can be an echo chamber yeah. on these platforms. Well, look, Media Hassan, if you believe that you were, in fact, fired because of your viewpoint, because of your ideology, uh, I hope that you will feel like there's a platform for you to explain that, talk about it. I think that you should be vindicated if you believe that's the case. I do think that if you remain silent, there's a way that he's tacitly endorsing whatever decisions MSNBC has made. Of course, the door is always open to you here to talk about what happened. Stick around. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Podcast host Joe Rogan unleashed on the Democratic Party in a new episode. Let's take a look. Look, if Biden died tomorrow and then what do they do with Kamala Harris? They're going to put her on the moon. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> She's the vice president. So yeah. if he dies, she becomes the president, which is wild when you hear that lady talk what if what if what if like Biden says like in I don't know May he says you know I'm I'm just not feeling up to it and then and then they say Kamala's now the president she's the first female president and then she steps down at the convention and they said well, let's give it to, to Newsom I mean do you that think that's a plausible scenario is possible but it would be a real problem for people that are Kamala Harris supporters and believe it or not they exist yeah, but I mean, how? I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure the Democratic Party is just like calculating how they big, have to. Be. How big is this, and what's what's the thing? Like I that? think they have no cards, and they're looking at this this game, and I don't know. I think they're depending upon party loyalty, and they're depending upon Trump getting convicted yeah. and arrested. I mean, and and um, uh, imprisoned rather. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't think it is. It doesn't seem to, it seems like it's a bunch of trumped up charges, no pun intended. All right, first I have to take issue with this idea that there's a an actual Kamala Harris constituency out there. There is not. If you are very online, it will sometimes feel that way because she has these uh, K-Hive trolls at her disposal. But there was no organic constituency for Kamala Harris as evidenced by the fact that she had to drop out of the Democratic <laughs> primary in 2020 because it was clear that she was going to lose in her home state of California, where she was a senator, to Andrew Yang, who was barely a quantity on the political horizon at that time. Yeah, very true. Uh, it, it really does kind of reek of astroturfing the whole K-Hive social media movement. Um, but uh, Joe's obviously raising a, a larger point and problem for the Democratic Party, which is they don't have a very deep bench, if you could even call it a bench at all, if there's anyone even sitting on it. And there have been several Democratic allies who have publicly suggested that Joe Biden should drop out of his his run for re-election, most notably David Axelrod, mm -hmm. who in a Twitter thread suggested that if Joe Biden were to continue to run, that it would be for his own personal benefit as opposed to for the good of the country. And they dogpiled him for they it. They did. The establishment went after him and he had to walk it back. Yeah. And meanwhile, we have this shadow debate going on tonight, right, between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis. There was a ton of speculation that Trump wasn't going to end up running and it was going to be DeSantis and then Newsom would replace Biden. And now they're, of course, playing right into that narrative by having this debate on Fox News tonight. Um, while DeSantis, by the way, has fallen underneath Nikki Haley in the New Hampshire polls, so that seems like he's getting closer and closer to perhaps a decision to drop out of the race. The Koch-backed Americans for Prosperity Action just endorsed Nikki Haley. They're going to spend millions of dollars propping up her soon-to-be-failed campaign as well. 
Um, but I don't know. I mean, can the Democratic Party legitimately push out Biden without him willingly stepping aside? So the problem is, first of all, that they don't—they seem not to want to do that at right. all. They're really committed to Joe Biden as a candidate, as evidenced by the fact that they've shut down the primary. I mean, to the extent that the Democrats don't have a deep bench, it's very much their own doing. And I'm not just talking about the refusal to host a Democratic primary, the refusal to give uh, the for, to, uh, of the liberal— cable shows to allow Marianne Williamson to have any airtime whatsoever, whether it's in a town hall or any other kind of format, things that they've extended to Republican candidates, um, despite it being a liberal channel, as we discussed in a different segment, MSNBC loves a person who's Republican not named Trump more than they do anybody who could be plausibly considered to be on the left. Um, but it goes back even before this current primary season, if you want to call it that. Remember, even back in 2020, for the crime of pointing out that Joe Biden was old and seemed not to be following debate questions and answers accurately, um, both uh, uh, Cory Booker um, and um, what's his face from Texas, uh, one of the twins, uh, were, no, were, uh, Castro. Castro. Julian Castro were both sidelined um, uh, for bringing it up in the spin room. They were like, well, yeah, like, he seemed not to be following the conversation. Have we heard from them since then? Like, literally, have we, those were our kind of up-and-coming stars, the Democratic Party's up-and-coming stars at the time. Have you heard a peep from them or anything about a presidential ambition since then? No. I mean, that's a really good point. And the— perceived issues with Joe Biden's cognitive state have only declined more rapidly, obviously, since he took office. This was exactly what these people were warning about, right, was that he couldn't even handle the rigors of a campaign. How was he going to handle the rigor of being president? Um, I don't know if you watched the turkey pardon last week. Ooh. It was brutal. <laughs> the, I mean— The Britney Spears— Yeah, uh... he confused Britney, Taylor, and Beyonce. But even beyond that, the, it was his birthday, his 81st birthday, mm -hmm. and his team had written several jokes about his age into the script that he— either bungled or delivered in a way such that it actually only drew more attention to the fact that his little jog as he goes out to his events is not fooling anybody about mm -hmm. his capabilities. And then he had the birthday cake that looked like a pyre because oh my it gosh. had so many candles on it. And it was like a visual representation of the, this is fine yes. meme. Yes. I mean, like, <laughs> I just, again, with, I mean, we talked already about like the Bidenomics decision and then posting that cake photo and writing the jokes about his age and about how, don't worry, even though the turkey pardon tradition is 76 years old, I promise I wasn't at the first one because I was too young. Um, sometimes I just, the strategy, I think it, it speaks to how a lot of the members of the Biden administration and Biden campaign are very much... Um, the Obama holdovers who were at lower level positions at that time and were very inexperienced. Mm. And instead of pulling, getting experience during this break of four years, they kind of just milled around cable news and milled around lobbying groups and then came back and are just equally as inept as they were five, six years ago. Yeah, I don't know what uh, I can attribute it to. All I know is that it's not working. And I want to be really clear. It's not just an age issue. Exactly. No one is, you know, first of all, none of these people are, are young whippersnappers in Congress. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is old, but he's not getting hit for being bumbling and incoherent. Um, Joe Biden specifically, Donald Trump is old, and he's right. not getting hit for those reasons either. Biden specifically is causing people who frankly liked him or at least were 
okay with him, to be genuinely concerned about his capacity to make it through the next four years. And the fact that Kamala Harris, who does not have high favorability ratings, who is not liked, is the number two, is not inspiring confidence among the American public. It's pretty amazing, too, that Kamala Harris in pretty much every poll has a lower favorability rating than Joe Biden, yet polls ahead of him in these head-to-head matchups with Trump. I mean, that kind of tells you everything that you need to know. I think it does tell you something about how concerned people are, frankly, about right. his age, you know, his, his stamina, Biden's exactly. stamina. And, and I think people um, within the Biden camp like to wave away the concerns because a lot of the viral moments are these silly gaffes like sure. accusing Britney Spears and Taylor Swift. But we also can't forget that at this APEC conference a couple of weeks ago, um, you saw Anthony Blinken shake his head in like just frustration and perhaps a little bit of terror yes. that Joe Biden uh, threw out all diplomacy out the window yeah. and called Xi Jinping a, a Dictator, dictator to yeah. his face. Yeah. And I know a lot of people were like, oh, well, of course you should call a dictator a dictator. Like, okay, let's well, not be naive. Act like, on it. Like, if you, right. if you were a principled person who says, She's a, she is a dictator and we're not going to deal with China, like he said about uh, Saudi Arabia, we're going to make Saudi Arabia pariah. Well, then stand by it, but don't right. say stuff like that. Yeah, if, and then if you're going to sit there and beg the guy to stop exactly. sending fentanyl across exactly. the U.S. border, then you have to play the game. Exactly. And he can't do it because he's. Not capable of doing it. All right. Tomorrow on Rising, I'm going to be back with Jessica Burbank. Bree, it was great to be here with you today. It's always a pleasure, Amber. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care.